Are you full of health and wellness information yet struggling to implement into your daily life? Or do you have your health sorted out but struggling to integrate it with your other areas of your life? We've surveyed a number of Wellness Couch fans and recognize that this is the biggest challenge that most of you face in daily life. How do you turn your knowledge into action and a lifestyle? Enter the Wellness Breakthrough. For three days and two nights in February, eight of your Wellness Couch favorites are gathering in Melbourne for one incredible event, and we just have three spots left. Entry to the Wellness Breakthrough is by application only. To apply, simply go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com. And apologies in advance if you apply and we're all sold out. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to the Real Food Reel. In episode 35, we spoke with Peter Defty and dissected the FASTER study by Jeff Folek and colleagues. Today, Pete and I discuss its publication in Metabolism Journal this year and what's next in the world of fat adaptation and endurance athletes. Hi, Pete, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Great to be back on here and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you too. So let's dive in. I'd like you to start with some context for us, just in case we've got some listeners that aren't across what FASTER is or perhaps haven't listened to episode 35 yet. So could you explain for us what that acronym stands for and the context of the actual study? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be glad to. Um, and I'll also back it up even even uh, give you some backstory on the, on how FASTER came to be. But FASTER stands for Fat Adapted Substrate Oxidation in Trained Elite Runners. Um, and it basically was two cohorts of elite um, ultra-endurance runners, uh, very well matched in all other aspects except their diet. So they were very careful in the, in the design phase of this to make sure they matched the cohorts of conventional diet and fueling athletes versus uh, fat adapted ones and and uh, this study was by uh, Dr. Jeff Bollock um, at the time he was at the University of Connecticut um, which had the number one uh, ranked uh, department of kinesiology in the US and Jeff has since left there for a posting at uh, Ohio State and basically um, that whole department kind of up and left um, grad students, other professors, and, and all. And then, of course, the, the last author on the paper is, is the uh, great Stephen Finney, uh, Professor Emeritus at UC Davis, who's a MD, PhD, nutritional researcher, and one of the real pioneers in, in the 20th century of, of resurrecting the, the ketogenic diet. So that's that's uh, what the FASTER study is, and it was published in Metabolism. And, and if anybody... Um, Probably most of your readers aren't aware of how academia works, but you know it's it's the old publisher Parrish thing, and and they got this published in Metabolism, which I checked out, and it's a very very well ranked journal in in physiology. So it's not just your typical nutrition, sports nutrition, sports physiology journal. It's a high ranked uh, medical human physiology journal. So and that's what Jeff Jeff and Steve were wanting to get it. Uh, published in a very high-ranked journal because that that adds a lot of credibility um, to the study. Um, so I, I just want to back up. Faster came about um, through collaboration with uh, Steve and Jeff and I, and a very loose one because I'm I'm the sort of the empiricist who makes it work in the real world and says what I want to say, and they're very top-notch, world-class researchers. So they're you know research is about controlling the variables. So they have to be very careful about what they say. And it started back, I think, in 2010 when I contacted Steve because a friend of mine saw an article on him in the Sacramento Bee. And um, he's, they said to me, hey, you, you got to check this guy out. He's doing a lot like what you're doing or talking about the same thing you're talking about. And so I contacted him and we met for lunch. And it turns out he was the very first researcher, Steve Finney was, very first researcher I came across or anybody who had, say, expert status 
to actually not only say what I was doing was possible, but but believed it and kind of you know was very encouraging about it. Whereas you know most of the people um, flat out just laughed at me at the time, um, even though our athletes were winning races and a lot of people were getting personal records and and things were happening. It was all considered anecdotal, right? Um, and so. Steve and I started talking and, and he was working with Jeff at the time and they were publishing a lot of things in ketogenic diets with, you know, obese people. And, but Steve and Jeff both had a keen interest in, in um, athletic performance because they knew it would happen. And, and people like Steve had shown this in the early 80s with, with cyclists that they took from being, they took metrics on them when they were in their traditional high carb diet and then properly took the time to adapt them to keto and took some more metrics and showed that um you know they they results where they could put out similar power similar wattage fat adapted and and there were some glitches to that it wasn't a perfect study because um it didn't measure like peak performance and all that but it, it was a it was a sign that this was possible in a scientific well, realm. And at the same time, in the eighties, this is when Phil Maffetone was getting results with the Maffetone method with people like uh, Mark Allen and Stu Middleman. And so, but it never caught on. And then here in the in two thousand and ten, you know, we started talking, and it led to um, a study we did in two thousand and twelve at the Western States hundred mile endurance run using uh, two cohorts of uh, fat-adapted athletes and um, conventional athletes. And in that year, uh, one of my athletes actually won Western States and set the course record, which stands today. Um, And then there were a bunch of fat-adapted, and that yielded some really good results, but there were some issues that they decided not to publish. But it, it intrigued them because the physiological data was so starkly different and and so Jeff was able to get the money up to um, from the Atkins Foundation and Quest Nutrition to do the faster study and he really did bootstrap it and um, I, I was instrumental in, in some of the design of the, the study and then also in getting athletes for both cohorts and um, so um, that's, that's the background on it so the the study commenced, I believe, in 2013, and it took them, it took them all year to get data because they had to fly people in and out. And then um, it took them up until November. I think this published in November, the first week in November. It went online, got published online. Um, and... Um, so now it's it's actual science. So yeah. people have been saying, "Where's the science?" Now it's science. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's what we've been doing for a long time. And certainly, we have that anecdotal evidence, but that's always um, not you know not enough for a lot of people. I guess now it's going to really change things because Faster is such a, a pioneer in terms of um, the combination of keto adaptation and elite athletes yeah now now here's the thing Steph. i'm going to back you up here a little bit with this and and because you know you've been a big believer since christian started talking to you about it and maybe even before and 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 the tri-specific guys pete and christian are big on it and it's it's the low carb certainly the low carb down under movement and pete evans with the paleo movement have really caught not caught on um, so, you, you know, that's the, the, the people who poo poo it call it anecdotal, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's like what's happening here is the science is lagging behind the people who are actually making it happen. And so, you know, just because now it's published, does it mean, you know, doesn't mean that, that everything that was happening before didn't exist, right? But, but unfortunately, a lot of people, want the security blanket of published science. And, and in this case, even Jeff Volick says that we're leading the science because it's, it's, it's been happening. They know it, it's not only possible, but, but it, it was happening. They just, as, as researchers, couldn't say much because there was no body of science. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it, when we break down the, the principles, are you know easy to intellectualize because they are so 
common sense, but certainly the the finding about fat oxidation at the a crossover point of seventy percent VO two max is something I think we needed the, the the data to to confirm because one of the biggest myths that have been in the sports nutrition world for 50 or more years is that you burn fat at, at low intensity and you burn sugars or carbs at high intensity. And that's the story that a lot of people have been carrying on um, over the decades and obviously faster proves things otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. Um, a couple of things about the study for people, and I do suggest your audience go back to, thir- to episode 35 and listen to it because we that way we're not rehashing the data. Yeah, um, but um, as far as, as right now is concerned, you know, faster, um, you know, yeah, it, it's showing that, that athletes are, are capable of much more than the current body of science is, is says is even possible, mm-hmm. both in, in how much fat you can burn and at what intensity levels. And I would, I would venture from a, from an anthropological evolutionary biology perspective that all we're doing, and that's, this is my philosophy with OFM, all we're doing is getting us back to our natural potential of metabolic performance and, and, and health and balance. Because, you know, what we've done in the last several decades with the, with the carbohydrate um, loading and, and low-fat, no-fat scares is we've taken ourselves so far away that we've made ourselves, you know, a bunch of carbohydrate junkies mm-hmm. in terms of athletic performance. And, and, and Faster has kind of really uh, finally shown as, as quote-unquote science that, you know, what we've been doing is not anecdotal. It, it was observational data. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I think the point you make about um, evolution is really important because essentially what we're doing is creating a metabolically flexible environment. So we can burn fat for when we need it and certainly endurance athletes need it more than most people. And and then, you know, we can have that, that carbohydrate oxidation for where we need it, which is obviously the very top end, um, but there's certainly some limitations and side effects of that, which is why we'd, we'd encourage the, the process to be able to burn as much fat as possible at those high intensities. That, that's, actually, that's, that's absolutely right, Steph, because of the reactive oxygen species, the mm. lactate load, all the things that occur. And w- with faster, um, you know, it's, it's like we, we've gotten ourselves back to this potential mm. that, that – because like what I say to people when I'm talk, giving talks is, is when you think about it, even the leanest athlete ke- carries more than enough surplus fat to, to run 100 miles or do a double century or do an Ironman. Um, the calories are there. We have a virtually unlimited supply of calories in our fat stores and, and therefore for fat should be our main, main, major part of our, our energy substrate for aerobic. You know, that's what we meant to burn aerobically and glycogen is a fight or flight fuel mm. for those occasional bursts. Now, you know, when you look at us evolutionarily and the pressures that shaped us, we're very robust. And so what we what we've missed is is glycogen's a fight or flight fuel, but we have this very robust supply of a couple of hours if we need it. Mm. Because of, you know, if you think about it, primitive man didn't get up in the morning, have a bowl of oatmeal, grab a couple of gels and go hunting. No. <laughs> And, you know, you see so many people who are kind of obsessive that they have to have their calories and they're in that mindset because we've kind of led ourselves into that. And it's like, you know, nature didn't shape us that way. So all we're trying to do is get us back to that that level of performance and, and fitness. Is in that That's sort of the simple way of, of saying what Faster did. And then um, I would also like to lead into some uh, some real key things about this now that it's actual published science and it's published in a high tier journalism journal and some of the the, the take home messages here for your audience and that is that the fact that it got published in a high tier journal is hugely significant because this first paper a lot of the data is stuff that's not been seen in the science before. There's no body of science to support it. And that's, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. And when you're 
you, you know, most of the science that's done is what, what, what's called incremental science. It's building on top of this. Well, this sort of breaks us out of this carbohydrate-based paradigm and, and why uh, Louise Burke, a week after Faster got studied, you know, published her editorial about reconsidering the fact that, um, you know, maybe, maybe she said called the nail in the coffin too soon. Yeah. But so, so it's, it's like Faster getting published in a, in a good journal. It wasn't published in a low-tier journal. You know, that's the kind of stuff that, that sports nutrition companies fund to study and get something out and then go and market with. You can get it published in almost any journal if you want, but, but when you get it published in a high-tier journal that gets really rigorous peer review, um, you know, Everybody it's listens. really... Yeah, people listen, and then and it doesn't give the the people who are wanting to poke holes in it because that's that's the thing. Science is you're trying to prove yourself wrong, so your peers are going to look at that, and they're going to look at the study design, they're going to look at the data, they're going to look at the statistics, and this is for people who are you know um, science junkies and statisticians, and they're really going to go over this stuff with a fine tooth comb to see. So, and, and that's what the peer review process is supposed to do is to vet vet that. So that a journal isn't publishing garbage science, especially if it's high rank. That's why. That's why the ranking system. Um, so that is that's that's hugely significant that this got published at all, and that it got published in a high tier journal. So it's pretty solid science. And it, and and I do remember when Jeff was originally doing the design, and I was talking with him and his grad students. They were being very extremely careful with. The design and then and the data collection. I mean, I, I remember John Rutherford, one of the subjects, um, and he was the guy who who recorded the highest fat burn at like over 1.8 grams a minute. Um, I remember he was one of the first guys in there, and he he told me like they were like calibrating and recalibrating the machinery because Jeff said we can't get this wrong. We have to have this thing meticulously documented, and everything's got to be right because people will be poking holes in this. Yeah, which is essentially how all um, scientific studies should be conducted. I mean, we know the big flaws in the old studies that perhaps Louise Burke has supported. Um, they put someone on a low-carb diet for a couple of days and then wonder why they can't perform, whereas obviously it's the adaptation period that's essential for the accurate comparison of, of low-carb to high-carb or conventional. And these studies of the past, everyone just you know, basically close their eyes to that floor in the study. Yeah, and that's a shotgun approach that everybody takes with low carb. And, and low carb, um, you know, getting fat adapted and getting that physiological way, it's, it's, it's nature's way. And, and once again, when you look at evolutionary pressures, they were pretty harsh. And so it weeded out a lot of people. And that's why survival of the fittest type of thing. And so when you look at... Keto- getting into ketosis, you better be fit because if you're not fit, you're not going to survive. And and there's 101 ways to get nutritional ketosis wrong, yeah. or if you have an underlying symptom like like subclinical hypothyroid, and you try and do it, and you try and exercise under, you, you might wind up with adrenal fatigue. And so um, that's the thing is like everybody was doing this, these various shotgun approaches and, and coming up with the with the kind of results that fit their confirmational bias. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so it's kind of uh, sad. And, you know, when you've got people like Steve and Jeff and myself who, who've had a lot of success with getting people fat adapted, um, that's where you, where you see this kind of performance. And, like, you know, what I've been doing with the OFM program is there's so many tiers and layers to, to doing this. I mean, I'm, I'm always finding new stuff and learning and, and, and it, it's just it's just one rabbit hole after another. You got to go down and, and learn, and it, it encompasses. It's not just a diet and exercise thing. It, you know, there's psychological, emotional. There's lifestyle. You know, there's making sure you know you don't have an underlying condition. You know, because you know you're putting. You know, when you do that that initial induction, you're putting another one more stressor on your body. So if you have a bunch of other stressors, whether it's a high stress job, bad relationship. Um, you know, heavy metal exposure, um, you know, your, your gut floors off, you say you have, you know, small intestine overgrowth or, or candida, you know, you got to deal with these things first before you get it going. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, you just don't, it's not, yeah, it's not just cut your carbs mm-hmm. and, you know, take a Vespa and the world's great. <laughs> 
yeah, obviously it's it's quite a process and it's it's not something that you need to rush. I mean, John Rutherford, who you mentioned, um, we know he's been doing it for many, many years and I'm not surprised why he did get yeah, the... Yeah, he, he'd been doing it for about two... He'd been doing it pretty seriously for about two years. Yeah. I actually... John was... John was almost a vegetarian when I first met him. Mm. <laughs> and now, now, like, he puts posts pictures of big steaks on his Facebook page and his, his wife hates him. <laughs> they, he, she loves him. She loves him. But every time he, he eats red meat, she's kind of like putting up a funny face. Yeah, that would have been a huge change for him. But, but I mean, uh, he's had, go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, he's obviously experiencing some fantastic results. So why would he go backwards? Yeah. Yeah, no, and he's 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 very disciplined. He's a former Marine uh, F-18 uh, driver, so um, you know, very disciplined, very process oriented. And so, um, once he got once he got the light bulb went off in his head about this, uh, he proceeded to go after it, you know, with a passion and really got it down and working for him. And, and like he even says, one of the biggest things when he got it working for him was bringing back the carbs when he was racing. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what you say about the light bulb seems to be happening to a lot of people because intellectually it makes a lot of sense. You know, being metabolically flexible and being able to draw on the 60, 70, 80,000 calories that you have available it is, you know, you don't need a degree or a, uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand how that could be beneficial. And I think, you know, I'm experiencing it in Australia and I know you are um, in the US when you explain it to athletes um, you know there's an immediate interest and, and certainly um, you're not having to convince them because it makes so much sense well I, I would say to you Steph that we're having tremendous success in Oz um, yeah. you guys you guys are much more culturally open to this heresy I, I guess because you're all a bunch of convicts eh <laughs> right, you're, you're convicts, aborigines, and kangaroos. Right, right? yeah, we right? like to throw right? that in know. there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's um, no, it's it's kind of funny because because you know you have Pete Evans on national TV each week. That would be like you know some famous paleo chef like Nell St- Stevenson, who's a who's a gal. I'll probably have you get an interview with her. She's a gal. Uh, mm. She's the paleo and she's yes. the original paleo cookbook person. Do you know her? I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, I started coaching her this year, this, this year. Oh. And she went from being paleo, mostly what I call PC paleo to being fat burning paleo. And, and she just, she, her performance has just gone through the roof. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, but you it, obviously feel like things are quite different in the states. You're still getting um, a little bit of um, a lot, a lot. It's not, yeah, uh, it's not. It would be like, yeah, like I said, it would be like having Nell Stevenson on 60 Minutes every week, right. doing another. You know, it, it's it's a, it's amazing what's happening in Australia mm. compared to here. There's still a big disconnect, and there's still a lot of resistance. Like uh, Nancy Clark is just putting up, she's putting up a huge amount of backlash and I think she she probably uh, has gotten she's probably in a very odd space now because one of the articles she wrote here recently and I'll send you a link to it but she wrote this summer was right after the, Jeff get, showed his posters at the uh, was Amer- ACSM American College of Sports Medicine conference in June and you know Louise Burke was there talking and Jeff was talking and she came, she wrote an article about how carbs rock because Louise was still saying touting the carbs and just trying to keep keep the whole carb bandwagon playing you know it's sort of like the the Titanic you know the, the band's still playing and mm-hmm. and the sink is shipping ship sinking and she's she's saying it's still carbs and and then she wrote something recently and said carbs are are still the the preferred fuel and and there's and I guess I'm not picking on her but there's still this disconnect with people that in the sporting industry that you still need you need glucose they don't understand that fundamental switch you make to ketosis when you when you switch to ketosis and you're in nutritional ketosis rather than starvation ketosis or ketoacidosis and that's what most professionals see how people see ketosis today because until recently it hasn't been 
you know, that's the only kind of ketosis you saw was starvation or ketoacidosis. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, I think so, people like, people like um, you know, Louise and certainly um, Nancy Clark, you know, I, I think the challenge lies for some people is they don't like to admit they're wrong. Like I think Tim Noakes is a really good example. He obviously wrote The Law of Running and has now ripped out a whole chapter because he yep. um, admits he was wrong and everyone respects him for that. Whereas people like Louise, I mean, through even my tertiary studies, Every book was written by her and Nancy has sold, you know, 500,000 copies in, in America and I, I guess for them the challenge is, is they've been speaking this language for decades and they probably don't know what to do because um, now the science is there. Yeah, no, and, and, and Louise has been very smart about having that paper ready to go and getting it out that week after the first paper from pa- Faster got started study the the one that says um have we re-examining high fat diets for sports performance did we call the nail in the coffin too soon and the nail in the coffin was it was was a paper she wrote in 2006 um, saying that we really got to put this whole fat thing to bed and and to her credit she tried very hard to get fatation to work but she really didn't understand how to make it work for sports performance and now now she's basically repositioning herself so you know and, and part of it's part of it's part of the competition of, of of academia you know now that the science is out there you know it's a whole new field and field of study so people are going to be jockeying for for funding right mm, absolutely so that's kind of the thing and and so what we're doing you know one of the things is is with Jeff and Steve and I we talk you know fairly regularly or email and they just tell me keep doing what you're doing because yeah. <laughs> it's getting it's it's getting people you know because that's the thing when you when you look at ketogenic diets and fat adaptation for sports performance you can go all day hyper adopters can get 80 85 90% there on on high fat but but you just don't have that that last gear for surging and, and high intensity stuff. And, and that's where, you know, strategic use of carbohydrates come in and, and where we've had a lot of success with, with Vespa and, and strategic carbs. Yeah, absolutely. I think it will be really interesting to see where they end up positioning themselves. I mean, a lot of, or basically every dietitian, their, their first argument is, but there's no science, there's no evidence, where's the evidence? And so they're not going to be able to use that argument anymore. So they're going to have to come up with their position pretty quick. Well, and I think that the, the position like like Louise has done is she's, she's positioning herself to, so she can fund and do a lot of these kind of studies and, and, and start publishing a whole new ream of things. And I think, I kind of think that a lot of people are going to start playing with you know, because science is all about controlling the variables and like the real world is just chaos because you, you've got so many variables and the often these variables are quite dynamic like, you know, the environmental conditions. Like if you're doing an Ironman long course, your temperature and humidity is going to change throughout the day. Well, that's a very dynamic variable on top of other variables and then you got to adjust for that and and that's how the real world works but science works on, on controlling variables and that's what a lot of people don't get. Yeah. Um, is you you know science controls variables so we can learn something about what they're studying, but you've got to understand that to be able to use that quote unquote science to to look how you apply it in the real world. And that's how, what I've done in in developing the OFM program was look at the primary literature, look at the textbooks, and then see how that applies to the real world because you know controlled controlled environments don't exist in the real world of training and racing and and just you know your everyday person just trying to get fit you know what's you know you probably see a lot of people who are middle-aged got extra weight and they're trying to get it off and it, and it has nothing to do with their exercise or diet it has to do with stress in their lives like their job or their marriage or whatever else you know or their family history or something something's going on there that's you know, or they're trying to do too much, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important point. Like all, even all the data we get out of the metabolic testing that we do with our athletes, it's obviously very specific to a controlled lab environment. So you can't completely extrapolate that to your next race or to your training session. So it's yep. obviously about the um, adding the art, which we know, you know, it's both a science and an art and being intuitive, um, will always help you apply those conditions to the real world. Yeah, and that's the thing. And people should look at 
the science and and the metrics as tools rather than um, the holy grail, which is you know you see people who you know they can't they gotta look at their stopwatch all the time or they they're they're using their heart rate meter and they're chasing those numbers on that and then you know how many times do you have to tell people to quit trying to obsessively count calories or yeah. worry about everything they're putting in their mouth you know and obviously you want them to make good choices but if you're obsessed about everything you're putting in your mouth that obsession is going to cause way more damage than because of the cortisol response than 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 you know not getting it 110% right yeah absolutely yeah very important point so yes so in terms of um the implications or i guess what's next following the publication of Vasta. Have you got some comments that you wanted to add there? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, so first let's look at some of the stuff in Faster. Like mm. like I said, the the there's three main things and, and first is the amount of of, gly, of gluca of fat people can burn. That's now, you know, Faster is showing that humans are capable of burning a lot more fat than what was previously thought was the maximum. So Everybody in the faster was burning well over one gram a minute, and one gram a minute used to be the ceiling, and that would be the only the hyper responders. Mm. You know, most people burn between half a gram. Athletes burn between half a gram and 0.8 grams a minute, um, and hyper responders can get up to. You know, the science said the maximum would be one gram. You know, and you have most of the people in faster doing right around a gram and a half and some people a little lower and then a guy like John Rutherford doing 1.8 so that's that's pretty much you know you don't need to be a statistician to to recognize that that's significant then the uh, crossover shifting and and here it's not just that the crossover shifted over from 65 to 70 percent of vo2 max but up to 85 90 it's it's also significant it's even more significant significant when you combine that with that extra fat burn so in other words you're you're burning all this extra fat and you're doing at a much higher intensity that's a huge game changer for glycogen uh and glucose sparing so so now you you can use that glycogen and glucose exogenous glucose and and glycogen it's it's a much more sustainable energy source for that very higher end of aerobic threshold and, and in pushes into anaerobic level. Yeah, and the glycogen sparing effect was um, quite an unexpected uh, result, wasn't That's it? the third mm. thing, yeah. Well, that is, it wasn't unexpected to me and um, it wasn't it wasn't that surprising to Jeff and Steve, but they won't say that because <laughs> we're trying to get a wow factor, but we've been seeing this in the athletes we've been working with is is what happens when you become uh, when you're an athlete and you're well fat adapted your post exercise ketone levels they get they don't get the same level of rise that the current body of fat adaptation and ketosis says you should get they actually get they get a slight rise of ketones but they get this big surge in glucose mm. like we're seeing i've seen some numbers a lot of people going up to and this is in america it's 150 and i can't remember if that's like 0.8 or 0.9 millimoles. It's it's pretty high. I mean, it's it's like, and I've I've even seen some numbers up to 200, um, which would be like, you know, people were thinking, yo, you got type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Uh, and and so you get this huge post exercise surge of glucose, and it's got to go somewhere. And because you're pushing and stuff, it goes gets shunted right into muscle glycogen. So the empirical data we were seeing in the real world aligns up consistently with what Jeff saw in the in faster where and this is where for the audience to know what happened was these the um, faster low carb fat adapted cohort were drinking low carbohydrate very low carbohydrate shakes before and after so they were taking in almost no carbohydrates and yet they were replenishing their glycogen stores um, after their three hour treadmill run and had the same level of glycogen stores as the carbohydrate people who were taking in lots of carbohydrates. Yeah, that's super cool because obviously it then changes our post-training uh, recommendations and certainly allows the fat adaptation to continue into that window. 
Yeah, and that I've been saying this for years that don't you, if you don't feel like if you stop and you're fat adapted, if you stop and you don't feel like you need anything, you don't need anything because once again when you go back to that primitive model um you know, the body is is a self, you know, we were really evolution really kind of shaped us mm. or or intelligent design. It doesn't matter where you are on this on the spectrum of a full-blown Richard Dawkins evolution or full-blown intelligent design. Um, you know, we're a self-sustaining being and we were, we were shaped so that we could sustain ourselves for days on end because there were times where it might take a couple of days before we brought down some game. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm. We found a food source. So, you know, after these, these athletic surges, our livers would take that excess ketone and glucose. When we stop, it takes, about 20, 30 minutes for the signaling to the liver to downregulate your endogenous production of, of ketones and glucose. And when you stop, your body, a well-adapted person, continues to burn ketones because ketones become your preferred fuel. Glucose does not become your preferred fuel. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because it burns cleaner, and that's that's an adapted person. This is this counters everything where everybody says, "Oh, you need glucose for your brain." Blah blah blah. Yeah. Your ketones become your preferred fuel, and it's not that you aren't using some glycogen glucose, but it's very little. So then, when you stop, your liver is still spitting out ketones and glucose as if you were like chasing after an animal. Yeah, and I do. So, so, I just want to clarify, though, it's obviously not. Um, necessarily the place where someone would first start these athletes that we're speaking about are very well fat adapted we're talking years or more so they're obviously in the position to be able to um, continue to experiment with what that post-training environment looks yeah. like and how they perform and recover them the best yeah and i i would say what we see is uh, and this is stuff discussions i've had with steve finney just privately we see that it's about a 12-week process for the physiology to get in place there's a you know the first as you know there's the first couple of weeks of you know the hell week right hmm. between three days and three weeks of of really switching over from a glucose based to a, a fat based metabolism and then there's another four six eight weeks of of upregulation where your hormones and enzymes really upregulate to burn fat at a high rate but then beyond that like you say for the years Beyond that, that twelve weeks, you're looking at you know several months before the behavior, the habits, the behavior changes take place and just become a lifestyle. Because part of fat adaptation, we found, is just taking a very chill, relaxed, subconscious type of zen to it, where you don't think about everything you're doing. You just do it. Like like when you intermittently fast, you just do it three or four times a week without even thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's very true. And obviously, the behavioral element's huge. A lot of people are coming from that world of snacking or grazing, eating every two hours. And day to day, what they find quite challenging is suddenly they're um, trying to keep, you know, five hours in between meals. And a lot of the, the food that creeps in is that habitual eating. And that takes time to, you know, obviously to make a new habit. That's right, right, and, and once you get beyond those twelve weeks, it's it really is a habit thing, yeah. and and like um, you know, so so what we're seeing is is this sort of thing where the, that was the third thing is the 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 glycogen, not only just sparing but but replacement um, that these guys store up glycogen are self sustaining and they store back up their glycogens. Mm their muscular glycogen. But what we're going to see, there's going to be a couple more papers coming out of FASTER. Mm. Um, there's a lot of things on inflammatory markers. There's, they took a lot of data, especially with the muscle biopsies and, and things like that. And it's still, I, I'm, I suspect a couple of papers are already in review. and um, But there'll be some more papers coming out of FASTER. And I think uh, for the audience, you're going to see... Um, more and more of this kind of uh, thing happening, you know, this fat adaptation in, in the real world uh, coming out as the science comes. And you're going to see a lot, like we talked earlier, you're going to see a flood of, uh, of research in this area. Oh, absolutely. I mean, FAST is just the, the bottom of the iceberg, really, and we're just going to be seeing more and more now that we've got the data um, published. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not anecdotal anymore. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be, uh, very interesting times and, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, because of our way of thinking, and I think 
commerce is kind of interesting, you know, and, and here I am, I, one of the things I do is, is offer a supplement, but I think you're going to see there's a lot of jockeying for use of exogenous ketone salts and yeah. ketone esters. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a little, I'm, I'm, I'm not against them, but I'm also, I'm also a little leery of, of, this push towards them because your body can produce them on their own when they're when you're well adapted. You can well, produce glucose. Yeah, so it's just essentially being lazy though. Like people are looking for the magic pill rather than taking the time for the metabolic reorchestration. Yeah, and and like you talk about metabolic flexibility, and and you're absolutely right. And and, and I think it's also important for the audience to know that that metabolic flexibility is is optimized by optimizing your fat metabolism because mm. that's what gives you the flexibility with the glucose it's not it's not sort of an in between and people really need to understand that you need to have that full blown hard reset and then once you have that you have this this and and you're exercising you build up the mitochondria and the muscle tissue and the hormone and enzymes that that are are actually provided by the exercise and then a a fat and cholesterol rich diet yeah, um, you're gonna you you have that flexibility where whether you're taking carbohydrates or ketone salts or ketone esters on race day, um, it really doesn't matter. Your body can handle it because that's the other thing. I kind of I've kind of been in this sort of like punk punk thinking of of how to kind of debunk some of the the paleo thing. And I'm not I'm not anti paleo. I really believe in 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 real paleo. But you know, I was saying let's turn paleo on its head and since we're talking about the science it's like you know if you were talking about real paleo it's like paleolithic man if you brought a paleolithic man here and you gave him a bread roll or some muesli or whatever um a non-paleo food would he eat it and would he would he be able to do fine on it probably yeah probably just fine because he's so robust Mm -hmm. and 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 that's the thing, you know, when you look at, there's been some really good studies on the Hudsu in Africa. They're the last of the nomadic tribe. They're an offshoot of the Maasai, but they're still hunter-gatherers. They're not herders. And um, the um, Yanomani in the Amazon basin, and they, they, they look at their gut, their stomach, gut, and skin biome, and they're like twice as diverse and almost twice as many bacteria. So, I mean, they're, they're just, they're just so much more robust in their biome. So, you know, crap they can eat. Yeah. You know, they can eat the crap that we're not supposed to eat. That's non non quote unquote paleo. And they'll they'll probably just do do just fine. And that's where we started ten thousand years ago with agriculture. You know, and and so we've taken ten thousand years of bringing ourselves down with agriculture, grains, lots of carbohydrates. You know, regular use of antibiotics. You know, sterilization tech, over sterilization techniques. Uh, not getting out in the sun, you know, all the things, all these different factors. And so it's like if we want to be really paleo, we really want to work at getting ourselves more robust as well as eating the right kind of foods. Yeah, absolutely. And that's huge. Obviously, um, the convenience society and the industrial revolution and the agricultural industry has changed what we have available and it's been certainly detrimental to our, our health and wellness <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think probably the most stark, one of the most starkest things you can see in 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 is right there in Australia with the Aborigines, and and you're seeing that right now with with when you look at those those photos back when you know the outback was being settled and these people were being moved into camps and stuff and out of their nomadic um, existence, how how these pictures, these people were like, I wouldn't mess with them. They they were. Really, and then there's a few people I've seen, you know, online and stuff that they went back to, you know, a high-fat animal protein, animal-based diet that the Aborigines ate when they were, you know, hunter-gatherers, and all of a sudden they lost the type two diabetes, they lost mm-hmm. the weight, and and so I think that that's a pretty, you know, you have a pretty good um, ongoing experiment right there, you know, and, and and just how the the whole rounding up and the and the the, the you know the the cultural things that that you know happened during those times and what it did how it impacted that 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 population group yeah and i think you're right like with the um the real food movement and and certainly the influence of paleo where we're going full circle so it'll be interesting to see how the changes in 
nutrition and gut health and certainly robustness then have that positive flow-on effect for training and racing. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and you know, for the audience out there, if they're, if they're athletic and they want, to, they want to compete and stuff and they want to do well, you know, they, they need to not worry about race day. If you, if you focus on, on doing the basics right, and, and Steph, you, you know how to get them there. So, you know, I'm going to give you a plug for Steph Lowe, the natural <laughs> nutritionist here. <laughs> anyway, um, when you get people back, that's going to be 80 or 90% of their time on race day. I tell people that if a gel works for you, use it. Mm. You know, because on race day, it's not the end of the world. If, if Freedom Fuel works for you, use it. Um, I do know that 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 like people there's people who are sensitive to wheat need to be very careful of gels with maltodextrin because uh, one of the sources of maltodextrin is a wheat ba- is wheat based so um, and you probably know that too um, yeah, but we're pretty I lucky found- in Australia though it's, it's largely corn but I agree there's a crossover effect um, with the similarity in grain structure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and the the carbohydrate in corn is kind of interesting because if you trace it historically from the Spanish conquistadors, you can trace rheumatoid arthritis right out of the – it was documented in uh, pre-Hispanic times and and it just migrated right out and corn went with it. And there's something about the the carbohydrate in corn that's kind of very inflammatory in terms of the histamine response for arthritis – yeah. So it's it's got its own it's got its own issues and and of course the the issues surrounding you know the modern uh, semi dwarf wheat is another thing so um, you know and and I notice it like like today Steph I'll admit to you I mean I had I was with some people and it was a social partly social partly work thing and it was it was an older guy who's a Vietnam veteran and a good friend of mine but you know he wanted to go to to a, a place that serves a buffet pizza and salad and I had a salad and some pizza and, and you know it was good while I had it but then you know like I'm suffer I'm still suffering like I'm going to yeah. go on a I'm going to go on a long fast just because I got to get this stuff out of my system and I do this once in a while just to test it out and I often do this with my athletes like once I get them adapted I'll say go out and have beer and pizza or, or go have your favorite food like that and it's it's really the best way to to get people to recognize why they need to be shifting their diet and why it really doesn't doesn't behoove them to oh, I completely agree. You don't know how many emails I get each week from a client confessing that they've eaten cake or whatever it is and how bad they felt and you know we can spin it to be positive at least it is the confirmation that what you're doing is is working yeah. and certainly that you do not need to consume that kind of food. Yeah, no, the stuff the stuff's kryptonite. Mm, absolutely. And so so you know, and I, I, I've done that with several athletes and I do it to myself time and time again because mm-hmm. it's just like I'm not gonna worry about too much because I'm trying to figure this out. So it's sometimes it's good to experiment, but it's it's like it's like, yeah, you know, you, you really wanna get away from this stuff and, and the science is showing it, but people or you know, a lot of people just just ignore it. So, but but the part I guess the take home is the occasional hit. If you're robust, if you're not a celiac or have Crohn's or IBS or some some uh, gluten intolerance, the occasional hit isn't the end of the world. And it it really because we're robust enough to take those hit. I mean, we you know, modern men from the Middle East has been doing this for ten thousand years. Yeah. You know, so so we're not as we're not as frail as we want to want to think we are a lot of times. So I like people to, you know, take a more relaxed approach, but but be on it. You know what I'm saying? It's like be on it, but but don't be OCD about it. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were touching on before about uh, gels or freedom fuel or what works for you in race day. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's one day of the year or it's a couple of days of the year. So it's it's a, a drop in the ocean. What we really want to focus on is what you're doing every day and, and certainly um, – the, I guess, the focus on training low and um, making the refined sugar-free choices. But ultimately, it's about up to the individual to find out what works for them for race day or certainly what foods they can and can't tolerate moving forward. Yeah. Now, with, with moving the science forward, I'll tell you some of the things we're doing. Um, what I'm seeing for the science is, is I think what's going to come out of the science eventually, but we're already seeing it, is you're going to see a whole what we're seeing is a whole new 
a whole new set point of metabolism that defines superhuman, super, not superhuman, I mean, it's human health, but just another level of, of human health performance markers that's not currently defined and in some ways is contradicts the current quote-unquote science, like like where ketone levels are in a well-adapted athlete versus a sedentary person. So, so like you're fasting ketones, the body of science says one thing, and, and like a lot of times these people can't get a reading on a, on a ketone breath analyzer. Mm. You know, and then when they do a blood analysis, they're, they're getting, you know, like 0. 0.3, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9 millimoles. Not, you know, they're not getting 3, 3.5 or 5.5. They're getting 1.5, 2 millimoles post-exercise. So, you, so I think what happens is the body... Um, and then, then oddly enough, we're also getting high fasting blood sugars in athletes, like like up there around 100, 110, which is the U.S. standard. I can't remember what it converts to, but it's 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 on that pre-diabetic scale. And and just yeah, so for the like honest, yeah, yeah. And the funny thing, Steph, is is I read this. And I haven't confirmed this, but. But the whole thing about blood sugar also got changed, the range. Sort of like the, the cholesterol, total cholesterol thing got changed by the pharmaceuticals. Used to be a little bit higher, um, and the, the insulin companies got it lowered. And so that range was a little bit higher, and we're seeing people with fasting blood sugars. Myself, myself I'm, my, my fasting blood sugar is 100. And, you know, it's... it's you know, I know I'm fat adapted, um, and, but I'm seeing a lot of athletes that are having, you know, 100, 110, 105 fasting blood glucose levels, and they have low ketone levels. But we're seeing a whole new metabolic level there, and then we're seeing um, very high total cholesterol, and in a lot of cases, both both HDL and LDLs are elevated, but the pattern size of the LDLs is the large fluffy ones because they have you know, low, low triglycerides and um, depending on when they take it, low CRP. Now, if they yeah. take a, if they take the, the, the blood draw right after a big event or a big block of training, they're going to have a high CRP. You know, you're going to have a high, really high elevated LDLs. It won't be the small, nasty LDL particles, but they'll have an elevated LDL because that's what your liver is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be putting, sending out LDL particles to rebuild cells and and make hormones and enzymes so you can recover. And so there's there's a whole new I think there's going to be a whole new set of metrics for athletic performance and that's it's really hard right now because I have some athletes coming to me saying what do I do to get my cholesterol down from my life insurance policy? Oh, I know. I have this conversation all the time. It's challenging. Yeah. It's insane, and these guys, these people are in are in what I would define as as way better health than the best athlete in the normal category. You know, like 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 what 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 is currently defined as healthy. These people are way healthier. But that's the whole problem with the cholesterol heart health myth, and how generic GPs and certainly. Um, insurance companies haven't updated their requirements based on the new science about the the LDL particle size and certainly that we're not using TC as a measure of health or disease any longer. That that's 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 absolutely correct but but you know the legal community and uh, the big pharma through the legal community has got everybody in in fear because for a cardiologist to go out and say something that's out of the standard of care that's basically setting himself up for malpractice. Yeah, although we have seen some really great changes there um, in Australia, there's certainly cardiologists and GPs that are speaking out against convention. It's obviously just um, clouded by the pharmaceutical industry, which we know is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Um, I just wanted to take a step back though. What is your explanation for you having a 5.6 or a 100 um, fasting blood glucose? I think it's because I'll tell you why we're seeing this high blood glucose. I think it's because when you're adapted and you're burning ketones, you just you spare the glucose. Yeah, okay. And, and I, I just think that you know, as an athlete, if you need you need the glucose to go, you go, and it's there to go. And because um, we're I'm seeing it consistently with several athletes, and it's 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 really strange. Some people have really what would 
you call like if they're just doing straight up keto, hardcore keto, they'll they'll have you know lower blood sugars. But if they're doing like OFM where they're where they're cycling in and out of ketosis, their blood sugars are going to stay on the, on the more elevated side. And I think it's because their bodies just have gotten to that point where they prefer to burn um, ketones over glucose. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point because it, again, um, I guess, supports the that the blood test needs to be analysed in context. You know, that's right. When we first start working with an athlete, we would want um, a lower blood glucose, or you know, certainly for those that are looking at that pre-diabetic level, the goal would be to improve that. But then, you know, it's a very different interpretation when you're looking at someone that's been fat adapted for a couple of years, and you can look at um, that in combination with the inflammatory markers like CRP or homocysteine, and then certainly the um, HbA1c. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like even HbA1c, HbA1c is like, you know, what what might be low for one person is high for another. Mm. So you know, if your if your HbA1c is is like up in seven or more, six and a half or more, yeah, you you better be. You know, you're, 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 there's a fair amount of glycation going on. You got to watch. But if it's if it's five, even five point five, that I I don't get I don't get all wrapped up if it's if it's there because there's just so many things to look at as to why it would be there. And I think there's you know genetic variation with people. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't have to be below five or four or something like that. I think that that's that's taking that's trying to make a one size fits all. Yeah, Number. obviously, if you're looking at that in isolation, that that just doesn't make sense. That's right. Particularly because we know most norms on on blood tests reference values are incorrect or based off sick people that visit the doctors. So, yeah, I think you're right in your statement about the fact that hopefully we'll start to see some reference ranges for healthy people, and and then certainly for those with a different metabolic uh, preference. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, we're going to see, so we're going to see, that's going to be a long-term project, but I wanted to float it out there so the audience knows if they're starting to see these numbers and their doctors are getting scared that they really need to do some more research online and get that research and put it in front of their doctors and show them, especially if they're they're getting results. Um, but, you know, um, I think that we're going to see, continue to see just a bunch of very interesting things come out of a faster like i said there's probably two or three or four more papers that'll come out of that and then we'll start to see some more research um and uh it's going to be you know very interesting times yeah i'm so excited to see what continues to change and you know it's great that someone like you can be involved in these studies because it's something you've been doing for you know many years now so it must be great for you to see that science is finally catching up and the conversations happening more and more across the world. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty exciting. It's just um trying to not get too lost as I said earlier, not to get lost in it all because um you know, when I first like I said Steve was the first researcher who actually, you know, said, you know, you're dead on about this because I, I, I at the time lived in Davis, California and this is this is where um Liz Applegate is. And I don't know if you, if your audience knows for her, but she she's a nutritionist that she writes a column for Runner's World, and she's pretty well known uh, both in the research thing and 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 she's you know she was I remember hearing her give a talk and somebody asked about fat metabolism and she just looked him in the eye and said it was there was nothing to it, nothing in the literature, and end of story. Yeah. Meanwhile, the literature exists; it just hasn't been directed at sports nutrition, as you said earlier. Uh, Volex been studying ketosis since the eighties. Mm-hmm. That was Je- Je- that was actually Steve C. Finney. Yeah. Jeff Jeff's Jeff's sort of has been his protege, and now Jeff is pretty much the rock star in this. And and uh, with with all all due respect, he deserves it. They've they've worked really hard and and faced a lot of uh, politics and academia to get where where it is today. It's taken it's it's been a pretty big battle and now it's kind of uh starting to turn turn well but i think there's still a uphill fight particularly here in the united states because there's just that disconnect and the fear of fat was just so embedded in the psyche of so many people that 
even when you talk to them about it, they'll nod their head, it'll make sense, but that subconscious fear factor is just keeps them from from doing it. I, I just know this from my own experience that people will come to me two or three years later and say, oh man, that that program and the Vespa work so great and you see they've dropped, dumped like 20, 30 pounds, but it took them two or three years to wrap their head around it yeah. <laughs> and get going. So yeah, it, it's... So yeah, but I think I think you know Australia can actually lead the way. Uh, I just see that that you know with what Tim Noakes is doing in South Africa, and then what what the whole paleo movement, what you're doing, what uh, the low carb down under movement is doing, what the tri specific guys are doing for triathlon training. I think that um, you're going to see. Uh, I think Australia is really going to be leading this. Um, and especially since what is it was it the All Blacks got beat or who who got beat who won who got beat I mean the New Ze- the Kiwis won over the Australians so so I'm sure the Australians are, are going to try to you know well there's lots of examples like that in Australia actually um, it's interesting to see that the um, the elite world is finally catching on which is more challenging for them because they are usually in line with a dietitian that would have a very conventional high carb approach so it's you um we often see it's harder for them to go against the grain so to speak but you're right the all blacks are doing low carb low sugar and they have a win so that's not going to be ignored nope 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 it's not and and, uh, hopefully when i'm down there this year this coming year that we'll be able to make some inroads because uh, you know that's what i've focused on the last 10 years is getting you know the fat adapted performance side of it And, and that's where i think you know you know, I'm I'm going where the doors are open, and there's certainly a lot more open doors like yours in Australia than I'm getting here. I'm getting a few doors opened up, but boy, it's it's uh, it's been tough. Oh, we'll welcome you in Australia anytime, Pete. <laughs> All right, super. Yeah, very cool. So we're just coming up to an hour, so I'm just conscious um, of asking if you'd had anything else that you wanted to add in terms of the lead on from faster. No, I, I think we, we really covered it, yeah. and I, I hope our audience um, is cognizant of the significance of this and that, that now that there's science, those in the audience who've been waiting for the science now knows that there is pretty solid science. And I, and I will end by saying uh, the low-carb cohort in, in FASTER, they were, for the FASTER study, because they were controlling uh, the variables, they were on a pretty strict uh, ketogenic protocol, which is what we at OFM call the fat adapted metabolic foundation. That's the first tier, that that foundation, that foundation state. But what what these guys, the, the low carb cohort does in the real world is they use they use the Vespa product. I'm gonna pitch that, yes. And they um they use strategic carbohydrates. Some are some of us are playing with some ketone salts in in addition to the carbohydrates, but but in the real world of racing, they're they're adding Vespa and some form of carbohydrate and sometimes some ketone salts. Some people, um, I don't think too many of the faster study people were, were using it, but some people use UCAN a little bit. Yeah. Um, but like I say, it's whatever works. Um, so they weren't doing straight up, they don't do straight up keto in their racing. No, and even John Rutherford, I read a recent race report of his and he um, certainly isn't exempt from errors with his sports nutrition and in-race fueling. So even someone that's been doing fat adaption for a couple of years, I, I hope, is still experimenting and fine-tuning with what they need because A, their body is constantly evolving and, and B, you only learn from that trial and error and races give you the most feedback. Yeah, and and every race is different. Like I said, you know, you we're we're de- in the real world. You're dealing with a very dynamic um, situation where the var- variables themselves are dynamic. So you 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 know you you've got to get this intuitive thing about how you're going to shift and do things and make it all work. Yeah, absolutely. So in the show notes, I'm going to pop um, a link to the full study, so our listeners can access the faster study. Um, which we know has actually been published. Um, let me just get the full study name. I can send you the link. Yeah, absolutely. But it's uh, Metabolic Characteristics of Keto-Adapted Ultra-Endurance Runners. 
Um, certainly the link to Real Food Real episode 35, which you and I first spoke about faster, and then the Louise Burke's response as well, which is um, a paper she released titled Fat Adaptation for Athletic Performance, The Nail in the Coffin. So thanks so much for your time today, Pete. It was great to chat, and I'll catch up with you when you're in Australia, no doubt. Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Glad to be on the show, and anytime you're up for it, I'm ready. You always are ready to go, which is, which is great. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. We hope you enjoyed this Wellness Catch podcast brought to you by Audible. Do you find that you just don't have time to read all the awesome books that you hear mentioned on the Wellness Couch? Well, Audible might just have the answer. Audible is offering the Wellness Couch listeners a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can get books like Eat Right for Your Blood Type, Why We Get Fat by Gary Torps, Paleo Diet for Athletes, or even The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. So to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash the wellness couch. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash the wellness couch for your free audiobook. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.